Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful in oil country and around the world. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with my Cult of Hockey colleagues, Bruce McCurdy and Kurt Levins. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Bruce. Evening, gents. Good to see Hello, you fellas. Guys. How you guys doing? All right, considering there's no hockey. <laughs> Kurt was just mentioning that your mom is really messed today, Kurt. Yeah, my elderly mom, who's in her late 80s, just can't stand the fact that the Oilers aren't, aren't on her TV right now. So, and I'm right with her. So, yeah, yeah, I had enough of no hockey all last summer and fall and everything. I mean, holy moly! Yeah, well, you really are done that, right, Bruce? Yeah. Yeah, you realize just how empty. There's not, not a whole lot to do during lockdown. Let's face it, like, not a whole lot to do. And it's kind of frustrating to have something that you're kind of expecting and looking forward to t- suddenly taken away. I mean, I've watched every Netflix series there's to watch. and I've gone through all the Amazon series now that are worth watching. Uh, so I have been missing it as well. So much so that I subscribed to the Bakersfield feed, uh, feed last night, finally. You know, I wasn't, I just didn't have, like, wasn't going to watch it before when the owners are on because I'm so busy. But it was fun to watch the Condors and to catch up, <coughs> excuse me, with a couple of players there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, the okay. Condors. We're going to talk about the the, the uh, trade prospects for the Oilers, um, some of the uh, impact of the break on the Oilers, some of the rule, the new rule change where you can um, join your team after a seven-day quarantine as opposed to a 14-day quarantine. We'll talk about the Oilers' uh, defensive group for next year and how that's going to play out. And then we'll look at the three Oilers who might be up for trophies this year, who have been talked about by various people for trophies. Let's put it that way. Darnell Nurse for the Norris Trophy, Leon Dreisaitl for the Selkie Trophy, and Connor, Connor McMVP for the Hart Trophy. Um, and the Art Ross and the Rocket Richard. Oh, yeah, we forgot the Art Ross there, <laughs> Kurt. We? we were trying to figure out when the last time an Oiler had won Three three different Oiler players had won a trophy in the same year, and we came up with what what year was it, Bruce? Eighty four, eighty five, with uh, with Wayne Gretzky winning that Ross, the Hart, and the Con Smythe, and Paul Coffey winning the North Trophy, and Yari Curry winning the Lady Bing. Yep. Last time, three different Oilers won three major NHL awards in the same season until this year. <laughs> no, not too many teams have. Other teams could make that claim in subsequent years. That is not quite. Of course, that 84-85, that was the team that was declared the greatest team of the century. Like, that was a good team. Yep. And, it, and it was the greatest team of the century. They got it right. Uh, Bruce and Kurt, let's start this break on the Oilers. What, just your quick thought. Will it, will it help or hurt? I want to hear help or hurt the Oilers and why. Bruce, help or hurt? Oh, Yeah. In the short term, it helps a little bit in that they had a ridiculous schedule right now. They were playing 10 games in 16 days, and they had like three back-to-back scheduled and, and with no without an extra day of rest in there anyway. It was either one day or none, and they were just packing the games in and doing a lot of traveling and playing the top teams in the conference. I mean, seven games in a row against the other three playoff teams, Winnipeg, uh, three in Montreal, and then Toronto, and and. So the break probably won't hurt them, although the loss and maybe momentum, because they they had it going on. Uh, 
probably won't help, but I, I'm very keen to see how a rusted gang of Edmonton Oilers responds to the Toronto Maple Leafs song Saturday night. Very That's keen a nice song, yeah. Kurt, help or hurt? Yeah, um, I'll pick up where Bruce left off. I think it helps, uh, and I think it helps the L- the Oilers relative to how it would help most other teams. Uh, and it's for three reasons. McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nurse. Uh, those three players who carry such a heavy load on their shoulders, when you look at their time on ice, both of them are just get ridiculous numbers. If there was ever a time of year for those guys to get, in, in air quotes, a rest, it's the perfect time. Uh, to, to come back into the home stretch, I mean, they're like 95 or 96% you know, guaranteed of making the playoffs at, at this point. To have your three heaviest minute munchers rested at this time of year when, as you said, the schedules are heavying up, I think that's key. Yeah, it could go one way or the other. I think we all know that. My take is I think it helps them, and it comes down to those three key guys. For me, the key guy, the health of the key guy is Mike Smith. He's the one guy. I think you could still win without McDavid for a while or without Dreisaitl or without Nurse. I don't know if you win uh, without Mike Smith at this point, the way he's playing. Koskinen is playing better, but he's got to stay in good health. What what has, you know, the reason so many people were against Mike Smith being brought back this, this year was health concerns as he's getting older and getting banged up. And he was having long stretches two years prior where he would play poorly, probably because he was hurt. That was the, certainly the case previous season here in Edmonton. So my, the reason I think it can help in the short term, obviously, is gives him, he was playing a lot, gives him some time to rest, reset, and I like that. Now, of course, if it's counter, counteracted by a heavy run of extra games and they want to want to run him hard, but maybe once the Oilers' playoff position is assured, they won't feel the need to play him. I don't think actually that's going to happen at all, though, because I think they're going to be in a battle for first place, and first place means a lot. Because that means in the first round you play the Montreal, probably the Montreal Canadiens, and not Winnipeg or Toronto. So I don't. I'm a little bit worried about Smith getting run into the ground later on here. So I'm kind of in between. So let's talk about this new rule, the seven-day quarantine, which CBC has reported. Maybe other people are reporting it by now that the Canadian government's changing the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, just what do you, what's your take on them doing that for the NHL? Do you think that's a reasonable policy? And what do you think the impact? Let's let's just start there. What do you think of the, of the the Canadian government working with the NHL on this, Kurt? Oh, I think it's I think it's reasonable because one, uh, show me a more tested group of individuals in Canada right now, right? Yeah. Um, th- this this is a very well tested slash well protected group of professionals, heavily monitored. They're basically in a bubble. Uh, so arguably, they're they're more they're safer than any of the three of us. Um, so I'll and I'll add on top of that. Remember, this is only going to apply to a handful of players. You know, even if even if four of the seven Canadian teams made a trade, there's probably only four or five guys that this will apply to. Uh, and so I think it's it's a pretty it's a pretty tiny thing for the government to do with with fairly substantial potential impact for for the teams that are getting those players because basically by cutting that that time in half from 14 to seven that seven seven fewer days they're sitting on their butt in hotel room 
seven days sooner that they can get themselves on the ice back into game shape and, and playing. So I, I think it's critical. And I'll add on top of that, if the Oilers three games don't get added on till the end of the season, and that's, that's still up in the air. But if that happens, um, if you get a player at the deadline, potentially that's three more games you get from that player than most other teams get. Uh, so I think there's a number of benefits and yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a good call. And from what I understand, it's, it's just a matter of time before it's implemented. Bruce. Well, that's a very good point about the, uh, having the guy for the extra games at the end of the regular season and ideally in the game shape by playoff time. Uh, it also cuts that time, not just by seven days, Kurt, but maybe nine or 10, because if the guy's sitting on his butt for two weeks and then joins the team, he's, they're not going to play him in the game the next night or the night after that. They're going to give him a couple of practices and maybe the better part of a week to get up to speed. Whereas yep, he's only agreed. been off the ice for a week, it shouldn't take him very long to, to make that adjustment. So Remember the uh, Ron LaFleur story about the baseball player for the uh, Detroit the Tigers? Mm-hmm. Uh, there I was remember a movie LaFleur, ma- great base dealer. movie made about him, and he had gone to prison, if I recall correctly. That's and the, I remember the, the image of him in his cell, sitting there doing push-ups and sit-ups, like to work his body into, into playing shape. And that's my image of the, the, the players just there in, in the lockdown room. You can't do anything. except <laughs> It's like your own 14-day uh, cell, and you're doing push-ups and sit-ups, working crazy. Mm-hmm. But you're right, Bruce. Like I think it's significant. Like being off... Seven days is a lot different than being off 14 days in terms of being hockey ready after that. So uh, the other thing that's hugely significant is the seven days, assuming that it applies to call-ups from Bakersfield, the Oilers and Vancouver Canucks are the only two teams in Canada that don't have their minor league team in Canada. So they were subject to to this uh, uh, penalizing 14-day wait to call up a guy from their farm team. And the Oilers haven't called anybody up, and it's no surprise. I guess Theodore Lindstrom. Uh, but uh, with that being cut in half, maybe there's a more realistic, maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel for guys like Tyler Benson and, and uh, Cooper Marodi and uh, even Ryan McLeod that maybe they have a chance to get their way in. They still have to work their way through a taxi squad of sort of experienced pros, so the odds are against them. But it does free up that movement, assuming that the the rule isn't specific to NHLers, that they, they haven't just said NHL players acquired by trade get a special exemption no one else does. And of course, if, if it comes down to the league making a rule in favor of or against the Oilers, we know how that one's going to go. <laughs> Do we know they, what the rule is if you go to the states? Like, let's say they send Evan Bouchard to the minors, because this could also facilitate yeah. movement of Lenstrom or Bouchard or someone who's just right. going to sit. Bouchard's got to play some hockey here. Mm-hmm. And and if do we know what the rule is going the other they, way? Is it also going to be seven days or it's less? It going shorter? Really, it's way shorter. Yeah, Line A when he got traded to Columbus, he, he technically could have played two days later if he'd been ready to go. He had a work visa. That was his only problem. That's and Ohio. Then, and the Jets had to wait two weeks before yeah. they could use Dubois. Seven games they had ice Dubois before they could even put him on the, the ice. The rules and, may be different, Bruce, in California, though, compared right. to Ohio. And we, that's yeah, the one that's thing we true. don't know. And I don't have the answer right now. That's but in, in theory, this could facilitate, because now the orders can think, well, we could send down Evan Bouchard. He could play for a month, and then we can call him back for the playoffs, right? And um, we only have to wait a week when we call yeah, him we, back. Yeah, he gets back, and that that's going to make some sense. So I think that's, that's what they should do. In in terms of call ups, I, I just watched the team, and I've watched all these players before. T- Tyler Benson has nothing more to learn at the AHL level of hockey, 
he is he is you know one of the best if not the best forward in the league um he's he looks to me like he's a, a little bit quicker foot speed skating speed is an issue with him but he looks like he's quicker he's reading the game very well his passing is extraordinary that's his one skill that really makes him a potential nhl player and i think given the Oilers' struggles on left wing, like they're looking at, we're going to get into what they might want to trade for. I think they're looking at trading possibly for a left winger. Well, I'm always at the position, don't you want to see if you can solve that problem internally before you expend treasure on a trade? Mm-hmm. Uh, see if Tyler, you know, it's like the, the old argument, well, we should trade Nugent Hawkins and they never tried him on the wing, right? And my fear was they were going to trade him before they ever moved him to the wing and they finally did and look at him. Now the same with Benson, don't, make any move until you give Tyler Benson a sh- I'd love to see him have three or four games playing with Leon Dreisaitl or Connor McDavid and it's not like Dominic Cahoon has been killing it or anyone else Tyler Ennis or anyone else other than RNH as a left winger on those top lines I think there's they it, they should they should do that and Marodi's in a in a similar boat they have two guys who are just ripping up ripping it up absolutely down there and already I, I do not put Ryan McLeod in the same camp I think Ryan McLeod has a lot of, he's a very strong skater, but he's, he has a lot of work to do defensively. And I saw it a game and they, I've, I've seen it every time he's played pretty much, but uh, Benson and McLeod or Benson and Marodi, definitely. They're both playing the wing, are they? Benson they are. and Marodi and McLeod's in the middle? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So he's got the tougher job defensively. And he, listen, he's a very good prospect. I'm not, I'm not, I just, I just see a lot of excitement about, McLeod in Edmonton. I just, I've seen too many Oilers players come in and be put in the very, very, very difficult spot of playing center. And if you can't handle the defensive slot, like so many of these guys uh, who have come through Edmonton, you're not going to help a team win. You, in fact, like, you know, we saw it this year with Kyle Turris. He, he was just a, a, a train wreck in the defensive slot. And it, it just held the whole team back. It was just game after game after game where they were getting a goal. You can't have that. So maybe McLeod could be a winger, but they have these two wingers in Marodi and Benson. The clock is ticking. Let's let's finally see what we have in them. So we were talking about this uh, change to the quarantine law coming. I mean, the other thing, of course, it affects is, is the trade deadline, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and for Ken Holland, what it really affects is where he can go shopping. Because previously it was, well, you know, Brandon Sutter and nobody else. If you're looking for a, for a, you know, third, fourth line, right shot centerman who can kill penalties. Well, all of a sudden with this, with this change from 14 to seven days, he doesn't just have to go to Walmart anymore. You know, he can, now he can go to London drugs and, and wherever else uh, shopping for the center. And, uh, and you still have to wait, but I, I think there's, there's way more potential payoff down the road and less reluctance from guys from within your division and the Canucks next year will still be within our division who probably don't want to trade with the orders. And I don't blame them. He can go to Domino's pizza and get Luke Glenn Denning. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that rumor. (laughs) There's a, there's a rumor, Bruce, you saw it about the Oilers wanting to acquire a right shot center. Now, Bob Stoffer on Oilers now has talked, mentioned the name, Mm -hmm. I think of Luke Glenn Denning a number of times, if I'm not mistaken. And who's an excellent face-off man? What what what's your thought on it, Bruce? Well, this was from uh, Frank Saravalli. I heard him today on the Low Down with Low Tide talking about uh, Glenn Denning. And I mean, it's a move that makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense uh, given 
uh, Holland's history of Detroit and trading with Steve Eisenman that he did two times last year, uh, neither one of which worked out well for the Oilers, I need I remind, and uh, Mike Green, and we got two games from Mike Green for a fourth-round pick. Oh. And, what, 13 games of Andreas Athanasiu for two second-round picks and Sam Gagne. Uh, so I'm thinking that at this point, Holland should be able to pick up the red phone to his friend Steve and say, hey, Steve, <laughs> after those two guys you dropped on us last year, what say you send us Glendening for a seventh? You owe us. <laughs> Isn't that how the NHL works, too? Like, it's kind of they're supposed to work, help each other out, and not make each other look bad. But the conclusion course, the problem was the is... should only draw, offer a fourth because they've already traded their second, third, and fifth for next year. So yeah. they should be able to see what they can get for a fourth, which well, might how about not a be prospect? A fourth and what a prospect, about, maybe. What about Cooper Marodi for Luke Glenn, Luke Glenn Denning? Does that make sense? Maybe. Well, the bigger problem, right, is money in, money out. And Luke yes. Glenn Denning's at, at $1.8 million. Yeah. Not too bad. So, so, yes, so Detroit's going to have to take a contract, uh, a comparable contract back. Would you or they're going to have to retain half. Yeah. If Detroit retains half, but you have to sweeten the pot to get them to do that. And then, then Glenn Denning yeah. becomes another $900,000 contract that you can put in Gaetan Haas' spot, you know, or yeah. whoever, yeah. right? I would not take Gaetan Haas out of the lineup. Like honestly, he's he. I was talking about that slot defense, Bruce. He is, he's a master of it. He's excellent. So I would put Kara on the wing, Jujar Kara on the wing, and uh, Glenn have Glenn Denning in as well. Jeez, see, I just yeah, I'm I'm not so sure on Gaetan Haas. You know what? I I think he's an NHL player just barely, and I know you're a big fan of him, uh, and. My problem with Gaetan Haas is he doesn't do anything extremely well. Um, and usually you can tell if someone's in the NHL to stay, if they can do one or more things extremely well. His best skill is his skating, and that's above average, granted. Um, but I'm, I've, I'm a little more sold on Haas this year than last year because I think he, he, he put on about five pounds of muscle and he's stronger in the puck this year. But I think if you're trying to win with with Gaetan Haas as your as your third center in the playoffs, I think you're going to be disappointed. So, Kurt, I would say he does one thing well, and it's the thing I really cherish in a center, and it's slot defense. I think you can count on uh, you need you need five you know five hands to count how many times Kyle Turris caused a grade A shot against the Oilers this year from the slot, and you you could count you could go through the videotape and you you'd be hard to find two or three times where Haas has done the same. So that's what you need from from that kind of center, someone who's safe. And his offensive game is not great. He is fast, so he gets in on the forecheck, and he contributes a little bit, not not very much. I'll give you that. Like I like he's not he's not a clear cut lock to stay in the NHL. But um, anyway, Glenn, I don't know, and I don't know anything about Glenn Denning, so I'm not going to recommend him or not recommend him. How's he like the reason that? Uh, that Bob Stoffer mentions that he wants Glenn Denning is PK faceoff issues. What's his, Bruce, did you mention that? What, what are faceoffs generally 64%, apparently number one in the NHL. I haven't looked yeah. at the master list, but I believe 64% to be number one. And, and he's a right shot. And he leads Detroit in shorthanded ice time. So he is a regular penalty killer uh, and has been for a number of years. He's 31 years old. 
and uh, you know 500 plus NHL games under his belt. I mean, I think the 200 hockey men would see him as a clear up upgrade on Gaetan Haas just because he's got the he's got the you know the the track record behind him. And that faceoff, that's a big deal, you know, the right shot on the faceoff. And it's way more so this year than in the past, because this year they came up with, or maybe it was beginning of last year, they came up with the rule where uh, on certain situations, on the power play, after icings, after certain types of whistles in the defensive zone, uh, the attacking zone team can choose which side of the ice that they can take the faceoff on. And if you have a you see when the Oilers are on the power play, they always take the face off in that left circle because both Dreisaitl and McDavid are left-hand shot face-offs. Well, if the other team takes one in the left circle, you're going to want to have a right-shot guy who can win a draw. And I'm not talking about 42% from Gaetan Haas. I'm talking about some guy who can hold his own plus against the lefties. And ideally, in a, in a, in a penalty-kill situation, you have a righty and a lefty, so no matter which side they choose, you have a guy ready to go. So that that's it's sort of a just a new little wrinkle in the rules, but it's one of the reasons you really want to have balance of lefty righty uh, platoon and the faceoff circle. The same way a baseball manager likes to have that in his bullpen. I don't know if there's been uh, tons of analytic work done on how important faceoffs are on the PK. I know that the analytic work, as I remember it, has shown that faceoffs are an overrated aspect of the game overall. They're talked a lot about, a lot by the 200 hockey men, but they actually don't really correlate well to winning and losing in the NHL. I can tell you this, just, just, I just did a quick little back of the envelope look at it this year, and the Rangers are 27th in face-off percentage. They're the third best PK team. Golden Knights are the 21st uh, worst face-off team. They're sixth best on the PK. The Wild are 19th on face-off. They're the fifth best PK team. And then at the other end, you see the Detroit Red Wings are the fourth best face-off team on the PK and the 30th worst team when it comes to killing penalties. So, and this, it just seems to be... But they're just a bad team. Well, and maybe Glenn Denning's part of it, though. Like, like this is why I'm not recommending... Like, I, I can't say. If he, if he can win face-offs, but he can't... He's not doing anything else. Like, he's not... If he's part of the 30th worst PK in the NHL, a big part of it, the, like the, the most minutes of, of on that PK, the key player on it, then I'm just, so I, I but I'm not trying to attack that specific player because I don't know. But I just think it's the fixation on face-offs is something I get a little bit leery about. I, it's not something I completely buy into. Although the one situation where I do think face-offs might matter, Bruce wants to say something. The one situation where I do think face-offs may matter a lot is that first face-off on a PK. Other than that, I'm not sold on the whole face-off thing. Bruce? I'm, rem- I'm remembering how, how well Jared Smithson did in the face-off circle, that one series against the Devils in uh, 2012. But remember an oil, oil change when the, they had the conversation about, uh, was it Tambellini uh, talking to the room about how they wanted to go out and get Jared Smithson for face-off yeah. purposes? Well, they need they need a Jared Smithson, but they need they don't need the 35 year old version they got in 2013. But uh, uh, a mid career version of that player is kind of, I think, what they're looking for a right shot guy who can win face offs, kill penalties, ki- kill part of the game without killing his team. So, Kurt, I made my argument about Haas. Do you have a rebuttal? Any any final thoughts before we move on? Well. Related, yes. Uh, what I know about penalty killing is it's a whole lot easier to clear the puck out of your own zone if you have the puck. 
So winning faceoffs on the PK matters. Um, I I do think that a guy like Glenn Denning would make sense because he is an expiring UFA. Uh, And I think the Oilers are planning next year with their cap planning to have either, notwithstanding how you feel about him, either McLeod or Holloway playing fourth line center next year on, on an entry level on an ELC. And, and if they bring in someone with, with still with term that blocks those guys. So, so getting, getting a rental uh, like Glenn Denning makes sense to me from that standpoint. All righty. Luke Glenn Denning. We'll see. We'll see. Um, let's talk a little bit about Oscar Clefbaum, Tyson Berry, and the defense for next year. Bruce, uh, or Kurt, you were mentioning this. I, I guess Clefbaum's having his surgery when? It's either today or tomorrow. It's imminent. So I'm going to suggest mm. it's impossible, absolutely impossible for any of us to have any kind of informed opinion on whether or not Oscar Clefbaum is going to be playing next year or not. We might have a gut feeling. Mine is no, but yeah. you know, you might have a different one, which which would be equally like who knows. I, I think so. Let's let's just start with the proposition that he is playing next year. All right, that he's going to come back. The the, the first issue is, do you protect him? And the second is, how does him coming back relate to the Tyson Berry signing? Does it relate at all? And does it uh, change your thinking on uh, the Tyson Berry signing? So uh, why don't we start with you, Bruce? Oh, okay. Um, Sure. Uh, If they know he's coming back and if they know he's healthy, absolutely they protect him. You know, he's a a proven, uh, has been number one D-man, certainly top four D-man and a very reasonable contract for two more years, still nice and young. Um, But I would suggest they'll be lucky if they know if he's coming back, let alone how close to 100% he may ultimately be. Like his his health has always been fragile near as I can tell. It's a, it's a sad story. Such a, such a tremendous athlete, but he's had this Achilles heel where something seems to happen to him physically every year. The same issue keeps cropping up. So I certainly can see a scenario where they just don't protect him. And and it's certainly possible that they may not even have to protect him or, you know, they could leave him unprotected and, and Seattle could choose someone else just because of the question marks. The way that uh, Chris Russell's playing, Seattle's going to be gobbling him up. <laughs> Kurt, yeah. uh, let's, the first part of the question, do they protect him or not? Um, well, I want to say I really like and admire Oscar Clefbaum. I think he's a hell of a good NHL defenseman when he's healthy. Um, I would not protect him, and I don't think the Oilers will. Um, I don't think there's any guarantee that he will be ready for training camp, uh, that he'll be ready halfway through the season and that he'll even be a version of the Oscar Clefbaum that we, that we are used to seeing. Um, this is major life altering surgery that he's having. That's, you know, that's not overstating it. The guy's number one goal is to be able to hold his kids. Um, I'm guessing playing hockey is, is a rung or two lower down on the ladder. And I just think there are, there are players more likely to contribute to the Oilers in the near term that are more important to protect than a guy who quite possibly will never play again. Yeah. What a, what a fabulous hockey player Oscar Clefbaum was in the 2017 playoffs. He was probably the most consistent Oilers player 
in those two series. And he was rounding into what looked like might be a number one defenseman in the NHL. And and then, you know, aggravated it, got hurt, and has been hurt ever since. And has frankly not, I don't think, been fabulous for the Oilers when he was playing because he was playing hurt. And I, I agree with you, Kurt. There's just, why would, even if he comes back, it's a, you're taking that risk. Why, why would you take, let's see another team take that risk, even if you like them. Have them take that risk because it's a lot of money. It's a lot of cap space. And you have other players who are filling in this year, at least adequately, um, doing a good job. I mean, um, Chris Russell's playing well. Darnell Nurse has stepped up as a number one defenseman, as some people including me, predicted he would this year. Um, Caleb Jones and William Lagesson are good players. Theodore Lenstrom's a good player. And, of course, you have Philip Broberry and Dmitry Samarukov coming. There's just a ton of options coming. Good options already on the left side. Marcus Niemelainen, who I watched in um, Bakersfield and who I was pre- previously criticizing based on his play in Finland. I'm now convinced that he was banged up and hurt when we were watching him in Finland, Bruce. He was skating very well and moving the puck pretty well. Uh, for Bakersfield. So yeah, I don't think they're going to, I don't see how you could protect them either or, or how that would be a good risk. In terms of if, if he does come back though, and, and you're getting a sense he's going to come back and I, and he can pass that physical, I think it makes a, it makes the Ty- Tyson Berry uh, decision very, very difficult. It's already difficult, but to me, it just kind of would be the icing on the cake there's not a salary slot for him. I don't see the salary slot yeah. that he fills in for if if Oscar Clefbaum is back on the roster. Now, if Clefbaum was on injured reserve, maybe you could you could find the money. But I, other than I just don't see where you find the money. Um, Kurt, you're not shaking your head. Let's hear it. Oh, uh, I I just think you sign him. I mean, it's uh, here you have the best Oilers offensive defenseman in 30 years, three decades. This is the right-handed shot, puck-moving, power-play-running defenseman that we've been waiting three decades for, and wait for it, he asked to come here, chose Edmonton over 30 other NHL cities, and we want to get rid of him. I'm not saying you want to get rid of him, but it's just, I just think, you finally have this guy. <laughs> he, he's an elite offensive player. And if you don't think that Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl are absolutely peeing themselves that they get to play with an offensive defenseman of this quality, you're wrong. They're thrilled. And I can tell you, they'll be calling their general manager and saying, keep this guy. Keep this guy. Now, you mean, you mean like they said, keep, you mean like they said, keep Zach Cassian and sign him up long term? <laughs> do, do you want to listen to McDavid again? Because that was the argument with, with Cassian, Kurt. Connor McDavid wants a tough guy on his line. You got to sign Zach Cassian. Exact yeah, but, same but, argument, but, my friend. No, it's not the same argument at all. You're, you're comparing Tyson Berry to Zach Cassian. No, the <laughs> argument is being used. They're not McDavid, even in the same universe. McDavid is the GM and gets what he wants. I think that's a bad way to run your team. Uh, I think every NHL team that has a superstar like Connor McDavid or a Leon Dreisaitl or Sidney Crosby has the ear of his general manager, and I think you want it that way. And this situation in Edmonton is no different. I sign him every day of the weekend, twice on Sundays, except, except you got to be reasonable about this. If the guy comes out and in this new cap world, post-COVID cap world, if he makes a, a demand that is just over the top, well, then it's an incumbent upon the general manager to make a good business decision and not 
signing that contract. But I don't think listening to Tyson Berry or seeing what Tyson Berry sees ahead in his in his in his future for the next three to four years, I don't think his ask will be exorbitant, and I'd bring him back. Um, here's the other reason why I'd bring him back. Everybody says, "Oh, well, put Ethan Bear on 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 the power play." Put so no, on the don't. power Evan play. Bouchard. Put Evan, Evan Bouchard, Bouchard on the power play. Yes. Yeah, let, <laughs> let's take one of those guys who's never run an NHL power play in his career and uh-huh. throw out Tyson Berry and roll the dice on Ethan Bear or Evan Bouchard. Both players who I really like who maybe one day will run an NHL power play. But next year, when you're trying to contend for a Stanley Cup, I think it's lunacy. I'd never do it. And I think everybody <laughs> thinks otherwise is wrong. Tell but us how you really that, feel. I'm kind of on the fence. <laughs> I'm kind of on you know the fence. Who, you, know, you know who else never ran an NHL power play until they did? Paul Coffey and Larry Murphy and Ray Bork. And all right, Bruce, let, let's hear from you. What's your take? Yeah, well, <laughs> Kurt. I mean, Kurt's point is kind of similar to your point in in a sense. I mean, he's taking the other side of it. But you're talking about all the guys that could fill in for uh, Oscar Kleppbaum as top four defenseman, and you listed uh, Chris Russell and. Uh, Philip Broberg and Dmitry Samarkov and Caleb Jones and uh, uh, yeah, William Lagason. And I can tell you exactly how many of those guys has ever been a top four NHL defenseman for any length of time. It's one guy, and he's going to be 34 years old next year, and he's played his way down and out of a top four role. So that's a little bit why I'm still leaning to uh, if, if, if you get the right version of Oscar Kleppbaum, you, you, you jump at it. But uh, uh, if Club bombs back, then I, I, I kind of agree with you, David, that the salary slot, I mean, it's they're running out of slots and they're also running out of places to put players. I mean, what, let's say they do bring back uh, Tyson Berry and let's say they sign him. Instead of one year, like this year, one year contract at reasonable money, he's kind of a roadblock or sorry, he's, a, he's more of a speed bump for Evan Bouchard. Sign the same guy for a three year deal. At, at bigger dollars, he's become a roadblock for Evan Bouchard because in many ways they're competing for the same role. Third, uh, you know, right shot, offensive driver, power play, and uh, maybe not, you know, maybe playing uh, uh, lesser competition. Although to Tyson Berry's credit, since he stepped up to the number one pairing with Darnell Nurse, they've been outscoring like crazy. So I'm not sure that part of him is real. It's like very opposed to his previous track record, but he's getting it done here. I listen. I really like Tyson Berry's offense this year. He he really passes the puck around. That five man unit that they put together is freaking fun to watch play hockey. Like those guys go, and they really like that that shift a few games ago where they were in the minute, you know, a whole minute, and the other team's end slinging the puck around like crazy, making all these wild passes, and Nurse finally puts it in. That was hockey heaven. I really like Tyson Berry. I think any discussion about, like, there is a faction of fans, let's trade him at the deadline. I, I, we're not hearing much from that faction of fans anymore for obvious reasons. But I do think this this was a deal best seen as a one-year rental for the Oilers. Mm-hmm. Tyson Berry, for all his offensive wonderment, is a, is a defenseman who leaks scoring chances against, and I hold that against defensemen. He's not solid defensively. And... Um, I do think Evan Bouchard shows tremendous potential to be exactly the same kind of player. Ethan Bear is a solid uh, third third pairing, maybe second pairing NHL defenseman, and Adam Larson's a beast. So those are the three slots. I just mm-hmm. I, you when you have a young and talented player, you do have to make a slot. You do have to open up slots for them. 
if you're going to, if the team's going to involve. Ken Dryden says, Scott, you know, Scotty Bowman says, teams have to change. Good teams have to change. And this is one of those changes that I think, when you look at the salary cap, when you look at the age of the player, when you look at who's coming up, this is one of those natural changes which I think makes sense for the orders. It's not like Evan Bouchard's going to be 18 or 19 in that role. He's going to be at an age when defensemen start to play really well in the NHL if they got the stuff. Everything I've seen from Evan Bouchard indicates to me that he has the stuff. So I, my bet's on Evan Bouchard, not on Tyson Berry, and I don't think you can make the, the bet on both. You can get rid of Larson and keep Barry if you want to go like the go-go attack team. Hey, you might convince me on that, Kurt, but you're not. Uh, you keep Lagerson. You keep Lagerson over Larson as opposed to Bouchard over Barry. You, you save go, your money that way. Yeah. With a left defenseman, that's a mean so and so in front of his own net. My my question for Kurt is, uh, under your scenario of signing Barry, what do you do with Evan Bouchard? Do you either? Trade someone else and make room for him on your third pairing. Trade Bear, or or you don't sign Adam Larson because uh, the clock's ticking. When will his back explode on him again, and he'll be out of the lineup? <laughs> Fair enough. I love how Adam Larson's playing this year. Don't get me wrong; it's the best I think we we've ever do. seen him. <laughs> right, but I mean, we've seen that from at one point. I think all three of us said, "Boy, you know that's." Adam Larson, what's going to happen here? Is, is he going to get traded? He's not going to get resigned. Is he going to retire? Is he going to come back from Europe at all? And all of a sudden, he's, I agree, he's playing great. Um, but I think there's a risk in that, too. Um, especially the kind of game he plays. All credit to Adam Larson. He doesn't leave anything on the ice. He gives it everything he has, and I really respect that. But the guy also has an injury pass, which I don't think you can, I don't think you can ignore. Uh, and so I'd, I'd be, I'd be super cautious of that. Uh, you could, you could either choose not to sign him. I think you could get a lot for Ethan bear. I don't think you trade Evan Bouchard because he, he, he is that high of a prospect and you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. What I don't want to do is I don't want to wait three years for him to turn into Tyson Berry if he ever does. So I think we've come to a little bit of an, an agreement that, that if, the orders are going to go there. Well, okay. It's if the orders are going to keep. Let's say the orders sign Barry. We're we're all at least open to this idea. If this, it's between Barry and Larson fundamentally, and if they decide to go on the right side with the three attacking defensemen, then on the left side that dictates you keep William Logason, you promote Marcus Niemelainen because you need. I think we all agree you really do need that ornery sob defenseman at least one of them. Um, on your roster, maybe two on the left side. Darnell Nurse says and hi. Darnell Nurse says hello. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the mix that you. It's a different mix because I I agree, Kurt. If you're looking just kind of at hockey actuar hockey actuarial tables, and w what's the lifespan expected of a 28, 29 year old defenseman Larson, who plays a rugged style and has an injury history, how long can we expect from him? As opposed to a finesse defenseman who can really skate. Um, and we see Chris Russell is kind of a hybrid between the two, but we, his fundamental asset is his skating and how well that served Chris Russell. So Tyson Berry, I could see the argument that, like, if you're going on a three-year deal, that's a better idea, better bet for health, good health going forward than Adam Larson. So maybe that's where we might agree that you pick Berry over Larson. And here's the other thing. In two years, uh, is Philip Broberg your, your uh, second-pairing left-hand defenseman? 
Yes, definitely. I think definitely from watching him play this year. I know that he's struggled a little bit in the second half, but man, that guy is such a hulking, talented player. Just massive skill, got everything you'd want in a defenseman. So yeah, in two years, I that's that's is where I see him. Damn, I read a, you read your post about Broberg the other day, and I, I was a little bit concerned reading it that uh, he hadn't progressed very much since coming back from his injury in the World Junior. But uh, maybe you can flesh that out, having researched that article. Well, it was it was someone for Dauber Prospects who was writing about it. And I, I think he was based in Europe, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, a Czech guy. And I don't know if he was seeing him live or on video. Right. And he, he had been watching him all year. And he, and he said much of what we had seen, Bruce, that he started off pretty good, um, but was fading. And it got to the point where whenever Broberry was making a play, uh, he was worried that, oh, there's going to be a screw up here. I did watch one game recently of his, and I he did make a couple major gaffes. Hey, he's a young defenseman. He's been banged up in a fairly serious way. I think he still may be a little bit. And it's not surprising if he's taken a step back. I saw enough, though, in the in the ten games I watched at the start of the year to be still confident that um, that he's going to be a top four, if not a top pairing NHL D man. He's just he is he's big and he's fast and he's got some skill. As long as the work ethics there, and I hope they did the research. Um, speaking of research, whoever did the scouting on Kyle Turris, can he please not scout Luke Glendening? My only point. All right. Um, hey, if it's going to be dollars, in, dollars out, maybe uh, maybe Kyle <laughs> Turris for Luke Glendening would be the Ooh. answer. That's that's the last thing Detroit's get because Ty- Kyle Turris doesn't have an expiring contract. No, Listen, yeah, he's Archie, got another year, right? Yeah. It's Archie Henderson. It's time to say goodbye. I think this was Holland's problem, honestly, in Detroit. He kept his old friend scouts way too long, and he started to get they were too long on the tooth, and he started to get uh, some bad advice from his scouts in Detroit. Holland's a wise guy, but he wasn't getting the best advice. All right, let's move on to the three trophy winners. Nurse <laughs> for Norris, Dreisaitl for Selkie, McMVP for Hart. So you know where I think on that issue. Uh, okay, who, who, wants, who wants to make the argument for Darnell Nurse for Norris Trophy? Is that you, Kurt, that wants to make that argument? Well, I can make the argument that he should be in the conversation and he okay. should be in the top five finalists. Um, I think it's a very difficult argument that he should win it. Um, <clears throat> even on, even on, on pure statistical merit, I think that's a difficult argument. But it's equally difficult to dismiss him or leave him out of the top five if you look what he's accomplished this year with his time on ice, with the points that he's produced, with his time on the penalty kill. Uh, the the level of competition that he's faced. Um, I just when you look across the league, if you if you're asking me to pick who are the best five defensemen right now, I'm I'm listing him as one of them. Um, and so I think it's difficult but not impossible for people to not at least have him top five in the ballot. Having said that, remember how many uh, American writers in the East won't watch a single Oilers game this year. Uh, although it's the general managers that vote on the Norris, is it not, you guys? Mm, I don't think oh, so. Kurt. No, they vote on the Vesna. Uh, that's the right. It's the Vesna. It is the voters. It is yeah. the writers. So, you know, especially this year of all years, I bet you there's way fewer uh, viewers watching watching the Oilers this year. And I think that'll hurt them. 
I think that hurts every year, but I think it'll particularly hurt it this year. So, Bruce, do those you have guys a- are going to be in trouble voting because uh, there's so much focus on the on the individual division where your home team happens to be playing in. I mean, I can't speak for you guys, but I can tell you I watch a hell of a lot more Canadian division games than I've watched from from stateside, and I don't foresee that that really changing. Uh, and so, I mean, the 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 compartmentalization of the four divisions has made a lot of things like there's no common opponents that you can even do a proper comparison of these players against. So, you know, that sort of thing that, uh, it's like four. That's a really smart leagues. point. There's no apples to apples, right? Yeah. I never thought it's of like, that. Yeah. It's like four different leagues with, with no overlap. So it's going to be tricky for guys to have seen the players enough or even to be able to analyze that, you know, statistically because of the different strengths of the, of the conferences. But I mean, nurse, nurse, I agree with you. He belongs in the conversation. I don't see him as being there just yet, but he's made real important strides this year. Just briefly, you were talking about watching other games. Um, I was watching the other game the other night, and I and I heard the the play by play guy say the name Phil Kessel. And I thought Kessel is still playing in the NHL, <laughs> <laughs> but but I hadn't watched one of one of Arizona's games all year, so I totally right. get where you're coming from. I wouldn't have him in the debate, if I'm completely honest. Um, I think he really benefits a lot playing with McDavid and Dreisaitl so much. I think that really helps his scoring stats. And he's a, he's a good defensive defenseman. He's a great minute muncher. He has stepped up as a number one defenseman. But I, I would put him somewhere in the category of 15 to 25 in terms of NHL uh, number one D-men. I think he's in that category, not in the the real elite. Like, I don't... Like, the real elite defenseman would have to play defense like Adam Larson and kind of attack, maybe not as good as Tyson Berry, but similar to that. And I think Nurse is kind of a tweener and he adds the uh, roughhouse physical element, which kind of elevates him a little bit higher than that. But he, like his work on the PK, he's part of a kind of a shaky PK unit and he is part of the, the group that's making a lot more mistakes than last year and not getting the job done. So I really like him. I really think he's a good number one he's a number one defenseman which i think you can that's the real argument the Oilers haven't had a number one defenseman in forever he is he has stepped up into that role he is a true number one defenseman but again it's it's just slightly out of that highest level of player you know he's he's improved a lot i love his puck retrieval more than ever before i love his decisions and his calmness with the puck than ever before i think he's better than last year when he was working his way to being a top pairing defenseman. He's become that number one defenseman. I don't want to put him down by saying, like making the argument that he shouldn't win the Norris, but I just don't think he's in that conversation yet. He's just in the, this other really high level of play. Well, here's why I think he's in the conversation. And that's, uh, well, he's number one in the NHL in even strength goals, number one in the NHL in even strength points by defenseman, number one, right? He's in the top five. Uh, in ice time, top five and plus minus. In fact, he's number two uh, behind only Joel Evanson of Montreal. He's in the top five in penalty minutes. Like he's putting up the big numbers across the board in sort of the feature uh, boxcar stats. So he's going to be in the conversation. I don't think he's going to win the argument, but I just I think he's stepped up to the point where he's now honoring that conversation, but seriously being discussed as a candidate to make Team Canada at left defense in the next Olympic Games, for instance. I mean, a couple Definitely. of years ago, you wouldn't have made that case 
for Darnell. Now you can make him a pretty strong case. Oh, I think he's definitely in that conversation uh, for Team Canada. Let's move on to Leon Dreisaitl for MV or for Selkie Trophy, which has been mentioned now and then. Uh, does anyone feel strongly that Leon Dreisaitl should win the Selkie Trophy? Not yet. <laughs> Bruce, he's, no? Why not, Bruce? He's he's still, he's getting better. Um, and his his two-way game, I think it's uh, improved quite a bit this year. It's a little bit unconventional. Uh, he doesn't, he plays the puck more than he plays the man. And he gets the puck a lot. He makes a lot of good defensive plays, deflecting passes or stealing pucks off of guys in dangerous positions. Uh, sometimes, so he's uh, uh, less than... Uh, what he could be in terms of angling guys off, boxing them out, uh, taking their sticks, you know, and, and uh, just being, you know, fully aware defensively. And he he uh, uh, he makes a lot of great defensive plays. And if that's what you're looking for, then then you're going to see stuff. And, of course, he's got great, great stats. I mean, second in the league in scoring, which more and more, for whatever reason, in, the, uh, uh, in, that, uh, in that trophy – has um, you know it's it's to me for defensive forward you should be looking at the defensive side of the puck but they always seem to pick high profile guys that uh, get a lot of points well that's him uh, he is great in faceoff circle uh, getting better and better and that's that's usually like most selkie trophy winners are self centers and most of them are you know play all situations basically and certainly Leon does all of that plays a lot of minutes. And he's outscoring like crazy. Some of his underlying numbers are a little uh, sketchier, though. And uh, he's, he's been riding the percentages pretty hard this year. Like, if you look at the underlying numbers, you'd say McDavid should be a bigger outscorer than Drysaddle, and yet it's not even that close. Another issue is that he plays center some of the time, but he's been playing wing some of the time. So his his role has been changing. And, for I mean, it's valuable to have a guy who can do that, have such a versatile player. But I'm not sure that that helps his cause for the selfie. When when he's out there with Yamamoto and McDavid, it's Yamamoto playing center in the defensive zone more often than not. So those other two guys look for the pass. Kurt, what about you? Would you make an argument for him for the selfie? Yeah, I would, and I agree with everything that Bruce said. And so I'll I, rather than repeat that, I'll add one thing on top of that, which is name the number of top flight, and I mean top flight. NHL forwards who would qualify for this trophy that you would have on the ice in your own end in the last 60 seconds of a game and you would have them on the ice for an essential penalty kill. And I can only think of a small handful of players that fall into that category and Leon would be one of them. And the reason I say that is I think a number of people involved in choosing this award would look at that factor and say, that's, that's substantial. Who else does that? Well, you know, Sidney Crosby does that, you know, a handful of other guys, but not many. And I think that's another wild card that you can toss into the mix with him being considered. Jonathan Taze, Patrice Bergeron. Yeah. I mean, those guys are the yeah, type of guys right? who do win the Selkie Trophy. And, and that's, the, that's the fascinating thing about Dreisaitl is when he's interested in playing defense, he does a hell of a job. When he's got, when he's out there and he's, he's wanting to, to crank it up, he can crank it up like no other 
on the Oilers playing defensively. And the, and the main argument that's going to be used for him winning the Selkie Trophy is his plus minus. He's plus 23, and a lot of people put a lot of weight in that. I do not. And I would, uh, I would not make an, uh, the argument at all for him to win the Selkie Trophy. He's too high risk and high reward on defense. And Bruce, Bruce put it very nicely that he, he has an unconventional style of defensive play. <laughs> he's, he's puck hunting. And he's not often covering his man enough in the slot. I think McDavid is a much better defensive player than, than Leon Dreisaitl this year at even strength. He's much more likely to be between his man and the, um, the man he's checking in the Oilers' net. He's much more, be, more likely to cover the right guy in the defensive slot and to be right on him and make the plays. They're both, they're both excellent defensively in that when they win the puck, they advance the puck out of their end. Dreisaitl's fantastic at that. He does have very many strong defensive attributes, but his mind also tends to wander now and then in games, and he doesn't always cover his man. And to me, that's not a Selkie award winner until he cures himself of that habit and brings that same intensity that he... <laughs> I see Kurt wants to say I'm something. I'm keen to hear until, what Kurt has to until say. Until <laughs> he brings that same intensity to every, all the situations all the time, which is hard to do, I understand, but I'm seeing it more often than not than from Connor McDavid this year. So I'll, I would argue for McDavid over Drysaddle, and I don't think either is going to win it, and I don't think either actually deserves it. So go ahead, Kurt. Connor McDavid's a way better defensive player this year than at any point in his career, but he is, he is not in the same class of defensive <coughs> player as Leon, Leon Drysaddle. Uh, I wouldn't play him in the same situations. I don't think he's nearly as good at awareness in, the, in his own defensive zone and, and shoulder checking and seeing the man coming in. That aside... Um, the other thing that I think I would say, and you may or may not agree with this, I think that anybody who covers, uh, their local team sees more mistakes in their own player than they do mistakes of players in other teams. And I think that's natural. Um, but I, but I, but I, I'll bet you writers in Pittsburgh see more of the warts in Sidney Crosby's game than we do. Um, does that stop him from being an elite, one of the greatest NHL players of all time? No, but I'm telling you, it's it's there. We just don't see it because we don't chart Sidney Crosby's games like we chart Leon Dreisaitl's games. But um, I'm not comparing Dreisaitl you know. Crosby. I'm comparing him to McDavid, and I watch both of them, and I'm looking for all their errors. So that's what I'm basing it on. I just think this year I'm seeing Connor McDavid take take a dramatic step up, actually, significant step up, not dramatic, significant, and I'm not. Leon's just kind of up and down. Like he's just, it just, and maybe, you know, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. I've already made my point. Bruce, do you have anything you'd like to add on this uh, topic? I've said this before and I'll say it again because it's appropriate to this specific aspect of both their games. Leon still reminds me of Mark Messier and his role on the team. And his, uh, Mark Messier had a reputation of being a very fine defensive player. And he was, other than he would, uh, I used to joke that he'd lead the league in rookie mistakes every season. <laughs> <laughs> With his, that's, uh, a, yeah, good, that's a good comparison. Uh, you know, where, he, where he, he would lose a guy at the wrong moment or whatever. But when he really bore down and focused on the defense side of the game in the playoffs, he was a monster. And, I mean, I'm looking forward, I'm seriously looking forward to seeing Leon in the playoffs. 
Me too. And this is when I think Leon's true defensive value, he could be, he will definitely almost, I think there's a good argument. He's going to be the Selkie trophy winner in the playoffs. Like it's in this player. I'm not saying it's not in him when, when he wants to bring that a game. And we saw this against Anaheim. We saw this two way, absolute two way beast when he's bearing down in big games and in big moments, he is the best defensive forward in the league. He's got that in him, and we're going to see that in the playoffs again this year. But no, the regular season, that's not thats not what he brings to the table every night. That's not how he rolls. I'm not going to compare him to Vaslav Nedimansky, but I might. <laughs> All right. He's an anti-Kopitar <laughs> class of player. Big, big Ned, now there's a floater. Uh, but I would compare him to an anti-Kopitar style of player, and he's still, I mean, anti-Kopitar wasn't fully anti-Kopitar until he was 26, 27 years old, right? So we're yeah. still, those years are still coming. The full maturity of, of Leon's career is still in the future. Indeed. Uh, and I, that was just a gratuitous cheap shot to Bass Lavin. Which, which hardly anyone was a ask. wonderful player, by the way. <laughs> yeah. When he had the puck. Offensively, it was quite similar to, to Leon. Like, they're both brilliant uh, hockey IQs on the attack. <laughs> so there was my dissenting opinion on, on, on Nurse and Drysaddle. I hope you're not looking for a dissenting opinion on Connor for the, for the, for the Hart Trophy. <laughs> I don't think we have much. There's going to be much to say here. This is starting to turn into an absolute cakewalk runaway uh, for Connor McDavid. Is there anyone else really that, uh, I mean, the Austin Matthews talk has completely evaporated. Did they lose to Ottawa tonight? No, they probably didn't. They? No, they, they won in overtime. Uh, right. Patrick Kane, apparently. Yeah, is in the conversation. So we, were, we were talking earlier about um, like the fact that everyone's kind of segmented in their own division. I actually think this really helps the players in the Canadian division because Toronto and Montreal are such massive hockey markets and such hockey magnets. I think it sucks a lot of the energy in uh, conversation around the NHL about who the best players are. So I think it might, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just because I live in Canada, I think this, and I kind of overrate Toronto's significance as a, as a market. Maybe New York or Chicago or some other city in the States has that same kind of stature as a hockey city. But I think being in the Canadian division gives the players a leg up on winning these big awards also because they're such high scoring in the Canadian divisions. And mo and many of the awards go to people who put up points, including the MVP award usually goes more often than not goes to the top scorer in the NHL or very often at least. Certainly one that has a margin of victory that's been uh... Uh, I think Dominic Hasek was the last player who beat a scoring champion who won the title by uh, more than six points. Like, if it's really close at the end, then scoring title doesn't mean much. But if some guy's got a nice lead, like Leon had last year, or um, Kucherov had the year before, uh, they tend to, to walk away with the Art Ross, and, uh, or with the Hart. And McDavid's now 10 points up for... Um, for the Art Ross and 14 points up on any player besides his own teammate Dreisaitl. So he's got a 19 points up on fourth place. My goodness. I mean, it's just this huge gap that's stretched out there. So he's uh, sitting pretty for that. And he's tied for the, uh, uh, he's tied for the goal scoring lead as well. And if he wins the rocket and the Art Ross trophy, it is automatic that he's also going to take, well, the, 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 the Hart and the Lindsay. Kurt, any any other thoughts? 
on uh, McMVP? No, I, 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 I think, I think he wins it. Oh, can, can you still hear me? I can hear you now. We just froze yeah. for a sec there. Okay. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's any argument. There, there'll, there'll be some, there'll be somebody out there who doesn't put Connor first on the ballot, and maybe it's a, you know, somebody in Chicago. But, boy, I just when, when, when you, when you look at the numbers, and then if you just ignore the numbers and watch the product on the ice, I just don't think there's. There, there isn't. There's, there's. There are number threes and fours out there. There's no number two. How's Nikushkin doing this year, though? Like, have we checked uh, into that? Um, I was. I actually saw someone arguing that that Thatcher Demko has a greater games above replacement than Connor McDavid this year, and uh, I don't know if they were seriously arguing that he should be. Above a, replacement. Yeah, but only somebody in Vancouver will vote that way, right? And it's, there, you know what? There'll always <laughs> no one, be someone no who will. says, "No, if you look at it this way," but there's there's just not enough mass in the in the in the voting group to to make that happen. So. Yeah. Well, how well, many votes Kush can get last year? Let's just check. Well, one thing I'll say about McDavid is that uh, you're talking about all the attention drawn to the games against Toronto. Well, he got zero points in the three-game loss to Toronto. So, uh, onus is on Connor to come up big in this high-profile game on Saturday night and bring it to the Leafs. Oh, I like that, Bruce. I like that <laughs> argument a lot. He will be very challenged uh uh, he'll be feeling challenged, and I would think very energized on Saturday. That could be extremely fun to watch. Oh, that's the best thing I've heard all week. <laughs> all righty. All righty. Anything else, gentlemen? Have we covered the field? Is that it? Are we good? I, I have 5% of battery left. Your timing's perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kurt, it was—it's been fantastic to have you on the the uh, podcast tonight. Thanks for thanks for uh, joining us. It's really fun for me. I'm 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 really good at being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we all are at this point, as many people will point out endlessly on the internet. Bruce, thank you as well as always. No, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. And I will just stop.